Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. History Hub is based at the University College Dublin School of History. For more information on History Hub and to download many more podcasts, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. Brian Shane is the Mary Ball Washington Professor of American History at University College Dublin, a Fulbright Scholar and Associate Professor of History at Ohio University. In this episode, part two of his five-part series on Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln, The Life and Death of a Statesman Lincoln's Early Life In 1859, Lincoln would summarize his early life to a Chicago newspaper editor in a single sentence, drawn from a mid-18th century poem. The short and simple annals of the poor. That's my life, and that's all you or anyone can make of it. Lincoln's childhood was a poor and not particularly happy one. He was born February 12, 1809, in Hardin County, Kentucky, in a one-room log cabin. His father was a rough-and-tumble Virginia-born farmer and carpenter, and his mother a devout Baptist who died from poisoned milk when Lincoln was nine. He also lost a brother and sister. Death surrounded little Abe, and some say contributed to a harsh realism and certain fatalism that informed his life. Two years before Lincoln's mother's death, his father had moved the family across the Ohio River, that great artery that connected the eastern and western United States and divided north and south. He moved them into southern Indiana and eventually still further west to central Illinois. This was also the, the Ohio River, that is, was the dividing line between slavery and freedom. Later in life, Lincoln would state that his father had left Kentucky, partly on account of slavery, but chiefly on account of the difficulty of land titles in Kentucky. Poverty had not suited Lincoln particularly well, and his adult memories of childhood were of backbreaking work, hunting animals, and occasional concerns about being hunted by them. This was frontier country. Despite limited access to books there, Lincoln proved himself to be an avid reader. At home, he memorized passages of the family's Bible, Pilgrim's Progress, and Aesop's Fables. Indiana's limited education system gave him some basic skills in arithmetic, exposed him to the histories of the United States, George Washington, and basic geography. Lincoln had fond things to say about his stepmother, but tensions deepened with his father as financial necessity demanded more of little Abraham at home, while his curiosity drove him to know more about the broader world. Lincoln and his father appeared to have become somewhat estranged, and later in life Lincoln would not return for his father's funeral. As a teenager, Lincoln was certainly no saint. In 1829, he and his friends, angry that they had not been invited to a double wedding ceremony of some acquaintances, pulled off an imaginative prank. As the brides waited in their separate bedrooms after the wedding party, Lincoln arranged for the groomsmen to be brought to the wrong rooms. Hope for those of us with children who may make poor choices. Lincoln's childhood of poverty motivated him to improve himself and to leave. He headed to New Salem, Illinois, and began an almost decade-long period of working various professions. At General Store, he became part owner and failed, leaving him in massive debt. One of the better paychecks he received came when he was an elected captain of a local militia, raised after a group of Native Americans warred in an attempt to recover ancient lands previously ceded to the United States. A short war broke out, though he would later joke that the only action he saw was of hungry marching and a good many bloody struggles with the mosquitoes. People probably know about Lincoln the lawyer, but I would also like to suggest that two other early occupations shaped who he would become. Lincoln served as a postmaster, one of the few civil servant jobs available in that era. 
It did not pay handsomely, but it gave him access to newspapers and a town's residence. He learned about the wider world and saw the power of the press. A recent award-winning book by Harold Holzer demonstrates just how successful Lincoln would become at using the press to get his message out, even secretly financing a German-speaking paper to help him get elected in 1860. Lincoln also taught himself basic trigonometry and purchased surveying equipment, making him a sought-after person in a land still covered by trees. His role as a general surveyor instilled in him a belief that geographic borders and boundaries mattered. Growing in confidence and in the number of acquaintances he had, Lincoln tested out state politics and by 1834 was elected to the Illinois State Legislature, a state whose capital at the time had a total of 800 to 900 inhabitants. He threw himself into the studying the law, and when the legislature moved to the larger town of Springfield, friends and acquaintances helped him to get established in a successful law practice that finally provided a stable income. As a state politician, Lincoln offered some insights into the, his views of government and its role. American national political parties were forming, and though Illinois was a solidly democratic state in the 1830s, Lincoln demonstrated his ability to look across political and geographic borders for political inspiration. He turned to Kentuckian Henry Clay as a political role model, appreciating, amongst other things, Clay's vision for an American system of economy that he hoped would aid Western development. Clay was also known as the founder of the Whig Party, the Democrats' arch rival. Little is written about Lincoln's economic views, allowing current commentators to paint him as pretty much anything and everything. In his time, he held to Whig orthodoxy, believing that governments should play an active role in creating a profitable economy that widely benefited the community. As he later wrote, the legitimate object of government is to do for a community of people whatever they need to have done, but cannot do it all or cannot do so well for themselves in their separate and individual capacities. As representative for a town that was dying for a lack of navigable rivers and thus meager commerce, he supported federal and state-sponsored internal improvements and the chartering of banks to expand capital investment. In a failed attempt to prevent a quorum on a bill that would have destroyed an insolvent bank, Lincoln and a few of his fellow Whigs tried to jump out of a window at the last minute before the vote was taken. Thereafter, Democratic opponents ridiculed him as Mr. Lincoln and his flying brethren. Though no Marxist, Leaping Lincoln accepted the labor theory of value. Labor is the source from which human wants are mainly supplied, he said. Capital is the fruit of labor and could never have existed if labor had not first existed. That idea would inform subsequent critiques of slavery, but it is important to note that Lincoln's near-boundless admiration for Clay, who owned as many as 60 slaves at one time, shows slavery was not, at this point anyway, a criterion for Lincoln's political loyalty. If Lincoln looked back to Kentucky for his political heroes, he also discovered that love could come from there. It came in the form of Mary Todd, a Kentucky belle from a well-to-do Lexington, Kentucky family. Lincoln had two previously disastrous courtships, one that had ended when the woman died, the other which Lincoln himself sabotaged. Both of those led to severe bouts of melancholy, what many psychologists today might diagnose as clinical depression. He suffered from this at times, including apparently after the Battle of Bull Run and the death of his 11-year-old son Willie in 1862. Unlike other women, though, Mary Todd made Lincoln comfortable. 
He gravitated towards her witty charm and relative comfort in formal social settings, which contrasted with Lincoln's own awkwardness. Still remarkably insecure, personally and not yet secure financially, Lincoln called off their engagement, sending him spiraling into another fit of depression, one that only a trip to his close friend Joshua Speed's Kentucky slave plantation appeared to draw him out of. After a year hiatus, Mary and Lincoln again became cordial, and in 1842, love and politics dangerously merged. With the rival Democrats in control, the state auditor, James Shield, a native of County Tyrone, whose family had settled in Illinois when he was young, declared that the state bank that Lincoln had been so fond of was worthless. Its notes would no longer be recognized by the government. Lincoln anonymously penned several biting newspaper articles from Rebecca, a fictitious widow in a lost township. Things might have ended there, but Abe showed these letters to a Mary and a friend. They found them humorous and one-upped Lincoln by penning one of their own, which mocked Shield's supposed lack of tact with women and ended with a sarcastic poem proposing a union between Rebecca and Aaron's son. Shields was furious about the attacks on his personal and professional honor and demanded that the editor reveal their origin. Lincoln, keen to protect the two women, took sole responsibility. When he refused to retract the letters, Shields demanded a duel. Though opposed to dueling on principle, Lincoln accepted. Hoping to take advantage of a seven-inch height advantage, or perhaps believing Shields the better shot, he selected a cavalry broadsword as the weapon. At the last minute, however, two mutual friends tracked them down, and after Lincoln declared that he had no intention of personally attacking Shields, but had only written the letters for political effect, Shields withdrew his challenge. At the time, Lincoln knew he had crossed a personal and political boundary that he shouldn't have. Rather embarrassed that passions had gotten the better of him, he and Mary mutually agreed never to speak of it again. Yet his chivalry had a marked impression on both, helping them realize their love for each other. They were soon married. Biographies of Mary vary markedly in their assessment of her and of their relationship, but she certainly encouraged his political career. By 1846, Lincoln was running for the U.S. Congress in the midst of America's first war with non-Indians since the War of 1812, a war with Mexico over the U.S.'s annexation of her former northern province, Texas. Lincoln probably wisely avoided the issue in his campaign, for the war was popular in Illinois. He later suggested his overall lack of enthusiasm for he did not believe in enlarging our field, but in keeping our fences where they are cultivating our present possession, making it a garden, improving the morals and education of the people. This is a revealing statement. Like many Whig anti-expansionists, including his hero Henry Clay, Lincoln wanted to better the conditions of the land and the people already within U.S.'s boundaries, not to expand them. But there was a related aim. His surveying career had also undoubtedly taught him good fences do make good neighbors. Lincoln probably held many of the negative stereotypes of Mexicans that other Americans had. But he was fastidious in believing that U.S. aggression towards her southern neighbors and their Republican government was unwarranted and undermined the very principles of self-government that Americans professed. When annexation of Texas turned into war with Mexico, Lincoln supported the call for volunteers, but his first speeches in Congress lampooned the Democratic president for not proving that the war had started with a Mexican invasion of U.S. territory. In a carefully crafted speech, he demanded evidence to suggest that Mexico had been the aggressor. National borders mattered, and they should not be crossed. This lesson would return to him when dealing with foreign powers during the American Civil War, and he believed he was fending off possible intervention from European powers. 
Lincoln was rather proud of his effort on the floor of Congress, but Democrats ignored his call entirely. And even friends at home suggested he had risked coming across as the opponent of a popular war that was finishing up with a U.S. victory. Mexico, though, would not forget Lincoln's position in that conflict. After Lincoln was elected president, the first foreign dignitary to visit him was Mexican Ambassador Mateus Romero, who traveled out to Springfield to meet the president-elect. According to Romero, Lincoln pledged to work with the Mexican liberal government to support stability and self-government within and along Mexico's vast border with the U.S. Lincoln would stand to that pledge, appointing one of the nation's leading opponents of the Mexican-American War as ambassador, and even offering the Mexican government a loan in an unsuccessful bid to pay off European creditors. Perhaps appropriately, then, today there are two border towns in Mexico that have statues of Lincoln, including his epically tall depiction at Tijuana, just across the border from San Diego. Lincoln's time in D.C. had given him hunger for more politics, but he pledged to be a one-term congressman, and he held to that pledge. In 1849, he returned to Springfield in a successful legal practice, working for Whig campaigns in his spare time. What do Lincoln's first 40 years tell us about this man? He was an individual who lived on the brink of poverty, but industry, good connections, undoubtedly fostered by a good sense of humor and a few minor government jobs, kept him from succumbing to it. We see an individual keenly appreciative of the ramifications of America's growing influence on the North American continent and abroad, and a man increasingly aware of the need to hold and maintain political boundaries. He was not however, overly uncomfortable with slavery and its place within the Union. He also had developed a witty, often cutting humor that worked with voters, but particularly with individuals. Lincoln had one joke he liked to tell about the English. It involved a revolutionary hero, Ethan Allen, traveling to Britain shortly after the American Revolution. The English, as Lincoln is reported to have told the story, took great pleasure in teasing Allen and trying to make fun of the Americans, and General Washington in particular. And one day they got a picture of General Washington and hung it up on the back or outhouse where Mr. Allen could see it. And they finally asked Mr. Allen if he saw that picture of his friend in the back house. And Mr. Allen said no, but he said he thought it was very appropriate for an Englishman to keep it there. Why, they asked. For said Mr. Allen, there is nothing that will make Englishmen defecate so quickly as the sight of General Washington. And after that, they left Mr. Allen's Washington alone. We hope you enjoyed this History Hub podcast. To receive updates on the latest History Hub podcasts and papers, please subscribe to our mailing list on historyhub.ie.